This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. That's right. So uh, why don't we get things started? Hello and welcome. You have landed in the Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse, or you have landed on the Decentralized Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For those that are here with us live, we gather here every Friday, 12 o'clock Eastern Time, using the Clubhouse app on the Decentralized Trials Club. So if you want to join us live, drop in on Clubhouse. It's a free app. Give a follow to the club. You'll stay current on the topics that we have coming up. You'll also there be able to access a lot of replays from gatherings we've had over uh, for well over a year. If you're not a Clubhouse person or you prefer to check things out later on your commute in the days following Fridays, that's great too. For you, we have the Decentralized Podcast where each week we're taking that uh, gathering that happened live on Friday and making sure that you can access it on your favorite podcast platforms. Give a follow there as well because we may drop additional content throughout the week. Sometimes we're pulling favorite episodes that were very popular from last year and giving some throwback episodes on the uh, podcast. There may be other special content that we're dropping there as well. Remember, the topics that we're discussing here today come from you, the folks in our community. And so if there's a topic you'd love to see us cover on Clubhouse and rebroadcast through the Decentralized Podcast, just let us know. You can drop a message to myself, Amir Kalali, Jane Miles, using LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever channel you like. And if you're not comfortable with those, you can send an email to secretariat at dtra.org and let us know if there's a topic you'd love to see us cover and if you'd like to be a guest on one of our upcoming episodes just like our friend Shaheen is a guest here today and we'll make sure we get you added to our schedule. Remember, we cover a wide range of topics here. They can be patient factors around diversity and improving access and measuring experience. They could be technical factors around interoperability, regulatory policy considerations, and also important new data and the work product of initiatives in this area. Jane, how did I do? Did I miss anything there? Nope, you covered it. And I know Clubhouse is new for some people. So Rebecca is working in the back end to get onto the platform with us. Craig, I think the only thing you missed was we also have carrier pigeon excerpts with us. Ah, 
You know, I always forget that technology. It's uh, it's one of those new cutting edge approaches, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's all AI driven. <laughs> well, uh, Jane, we have a, a fun topic in store today. This one is going to build on, I guess, two things happening in parallel. Some of the work and conversations uh, that are happening today around 1572s and understanding what are the expectations of a 1572 in our new models for clinical research and contextualizing some of that with the draft guidance from the FDA on decentralized clinical trials that was just released last month. How would you like to set up this week's topic, Jane? I'm happy to do that. Thanks for the airtime. So um, let me just start at the beginning. We were working on how to help people navigate some of the regulatory document details before the draft guidance was released because lots of our member organizations and the people who talk to us regularly had said, this is confusing. We're not exactly sure what to do. And I personally have had the experience where different players in the ecosystem will give very different direction on exactly what to do with the regulatory documents. Um, it got to the point where in one case, somebody uh, actually recommended that the VIN number of a mobile research unit be annotated on the 1572 because as it were, it was going to be a research location. That, that seems a little bit uh, over the top to me personally, but frankly, we didn't know how to navigate. So we created a collab, which is um, a shorter term and tighter focus cross-functional work group to try and sort out how might we provide some guidance on how to navigate these regulatory documents and actually, what other things aren't clear enough to us and how might we generate some questions that we might take to policymakers? So uh, a small team was chartered and started off on this work pretty early in April. Then the draft guidance got released, and that helped us both get clearer and raise some new questions. So two of the people who are on the stage with us today are members of that collab, specifically on the regulatory document uh, journey. Just to be clear, Craig mentioned this, we have another team that is working on what we might call non-traditional sites and how they fit into the DCT model, what they are, how to qualify them, select them, what sort of training requirements you might think of, and then how to demonstrate PI oversight. So the focus today that we were going to talk about is how does the guidance help provide more clarity? And are there things that are still puzzling us? I'll stop there and Craig, you can add in. I think that is a great setup for today. Why don't we get to meet some of the folks that are joining us here today? So uh, Shaheen, it's good to have you here. Feel free to come off mute, introduce yourself for folks that have not had the pleasure and maybe even share an opening thought if you don't mind on today's topic. Sure, thanks uh, Craig and thanks Amir and Jane for having me. Uh, today on the podcast, um, Shaheen Lambada, I'm the Executive Vice President of Innovation and Strategy 
at Veristat. So most of my career, we've I've been in clinical operations like many of you, um, have an entrepreneurial spirit, opened my own CRO and sold it, and sort of had the itch to get back to that. So my more recent role in Veristat has been really focused on bringing innovation to Veristat. And one of the key focal points we had, obviously, was decentralized clinical trials. Um, and that's really one of my big focuses. So going through, um, you know, the navigation of the pandemic, where we all had to be quick and nimble and uh, ensure we were trying to continue clinical trials to the best of our ability to now a more focused strategic view. And in that, many challenges have you know, come across my desk in terms of adoption, as many of you probably have, have heard or have faced as well. And one of them is really around um, the challenges that I think um, principal investigators have with the way current 1572 is designed. And as a result, um, it, it is not really conducive for a type of uh, decentralized strategies or definition of sites that we're now starting to create and, and bring to the table. So um, I'm excited to be part of the collab with Jane, Becky, and others as we've been discussing how to advance the 1572, as I think it's a critical document, which if we can do it in the right way and make it some, somewhat easier for folks, perhaps it helps with the adoption question um, and challenge that we're facing as well. So thanks again and looking forward to the conversation. Thank you, Shaheen, for sharing the background. And Becky, welcome to Clubhouse. I see you found your mute and unmute button. You're a pro at this already. Um, <laughs> why don't you, if, if you don't mind, introduce yourself for folks that haven't had the pleasure and share uh, some of your initial perspective on why you've chosen to invest some time on this topic. Absolutely. Thanks, Craig, and apologize for my technical difficulties this morning, but I'm happy to be here to join the discussion my name is Becky Kachati. I'm a director of research operations at Mayo Clinic. Um, and my charge here at Mayo Clinic is really to support our investigators in decentralizing clinical trials, whether that be in a hybrid format for a seemingly traditional clinical trial or looking at opportunities to fully decentralize clinical trials. My background is uh, in finance and clinical research. I've been at Mayo for 22 years, supporting process improvement projects in the clinical research space and navigating all of the different components from a regulatory, operational, as well as billing component um, in the clinical trial space. So as we think about today and the topic of the 1572, I think it's so critical for us to understand how can we support our researchers and study teams in navigating changes as they happen? And what is physician oversight look like? What, how do we help manage when we have virtual options that didn't exist when the original 1572 was developed? And how do we help our teams navigate through the processes they need in place and potential changes we can make from a regulatory perspective to make it a more streamlined process? Becky, I wonder if you could just help demystify something out of the out of the get go. Some folks in the room may be familiar with the 1572. Some may have interacted with the 1572. What exactly is this form 1572? I think in some folks' minds, this is like a book that needs to be filled out, but it's not quite that um, that vast, is it? 
It isn't. And, um, I, you know, I think initially as we think about it, it's not a relatively long form, but it it leaves things open to interpretation. And it's really looking at who is responsible for the conduct of the clinical trial as, as well as what is being documented to support the data collection processes for clinical trials. And so really wanting to understand from a regulatory perspective, who are those key players that are participating in a clinical trial when questions arise um, from an FDA perspective or from a regulatory perspective? So it's been interesting to hear like where this form, this uh, pretty basic one pager um, seems to be getting folks uh, tied up. Um, sometimes, you know, I, I, I had my eyes open by uh, uh, some work that Paul Klutz at the FDA had been driving with ASCO around uh, the 1572 in oncology trials. And it sounded from their perspective like, hey, we just want people to be able to get labs acquired locally or images acquired locally, or maybe even routine care chemo administered in their community physician's office. Um, if these are routine care activities or uh, things that may be getting analyzed centrally and just the specimen acquired locally, um, oh, why are folks getting so tripped up over the 1572? But now, as Jane was mentioning earlier, it's there are even more expansive use cases that seem to be getting in the way. Are, can we use pharmacy networks? Can we have sites on wheels? Um, so. Becky, are, are, is this kind of the landscape of challenge here, um, or are there even more basic things that seem to be getting stressed by the constraints of the 1572 today? So I think in many ways, those are those are key examples of, of some of our challenges. And then I think some of the, the challenges also incurred are how we interpret uh, participation in a clinical trial. So as we think about mobile phlebotomy and in-home nursing and local labs, you, I think the new guidance has helped us understand how best to support um, those types of occurrences when they're in a decentralized fashion. But sometimes it gets down to the details of what's actually happening in that particular clinical trial. And so many of us in, in the industry, um, you may have an interpretation of what is included and what isn't. And so I think providing some examples of what might make sense um, can help people navigate through what has to be on the 1572 and what does not. Yeah, I'm going to chime in because one of the, maybe not so, <laughs> maybe I should have realized this before, but my insight from digging in on this guidance and thinking a lot about it with these wonderful people who've joined us on the mission is that the policymakers, those would be three-letter agency folks, are not necessarily operators, the people who actually do the documentation and run the trials. And so while to Craig's point, they might think that they're making things easier and clearer, those of us who get in the weeds of exactly what has to go where to avoid a four, I can't speak, 483, tie ourselves up in knots. So I think as we've been thinking about it, we're trying to really understand the intent of the guidance, which I think is to help clarify and simplify 
and hold ourselves as operators to that um, top line, like let's try to keep it simple. I think, you know, I'll just say a couple of words as someone who's been on hundreds of 1572 as a PI years ago. Um, it seems to me that it's a very specific example of the analogies I would make would be just like you said, Jane, so people with ivory towers writing protocols who've never been to a site, or frankly, our politicians, you know, passing legislation they've never read or have no idea how it's going to have consequences. It's kind of funny analogies, but it's a little bit like that, as you're saying, that kind of perhaps, you know, uh, it's hard to produce a document and think of every single variation that may come in the future or, uh, you know, can happen. So it is challenging both for the policymakers and, as you said, for the operators trying to operationalize it, right? Yeah, and I never thought about it, but actually it is a document that falls under, and I'm going to get this wrong, legal jurisdiction, which means that to change it federally requires a whole lot of processes in government that may or may not be easy to get through. So let me just say this. At the front end of this task, we seriously thought about what might we ask to change in the document. Now I think we're more in the, okay, if we're going to live with the document, how do we provide guidance to help people interpret it? Well, and, and it is interesting, right? This is a two-page form that has its own guidance document already. And so that, that clearly has been at least one important way that clarifications have been made around the, um, around the 1572. Uh, Shaheen, Becky, would either of you want to share any perspective, if you're comfortable, on the FDA's draft guidance and some of the positioning we're starting to see there? Because there are quite a few mentions of the 1572 in the draft guidance. Sure, I can uh, I can start and Becky can can chime in. <clears throat> you know, I think taking a look back as you guys just were mentioning, like the current version of the 1572 is a longstanding document which was designed really for traditional trial delivery models, right? So with the current advancements we've had in DCT solutions, specifically the shifts of site definitions, you know, things to include mobile, retail, virtual sites. Um, the current 1572 does not make it, you know, clear how to complete this form in a non-traditional setting. So, you know, we're, we're trying to all figure it out and making various assumptions and hopes to honor really the intent of the document while not making it too cumbersome and prohibitive really to DCT related settings. So the guidance, I would say, made an attempt to gain clarity on items, um, things such as, you know, the listing of local labs, as you mentioned, uh, not too long ago and, and trying to make sure folks just get out and ability to go to a local lab um, and conducting things like standard of care procedures in, in a setting of a virtual trial. Um, I think those were areas that the guidance tried to clarify and, and simplify in terms of showcasing what may what may be conducive or sorry, what may require for someone to remain on a 1572 versus, versus uh, not have to be on it. Um, but I think the guidance still places the onus on the PI to take responsibility of these related services. And I guess my question for all of us is also how realistic is it for, you know, a PI to qualify a third party nursing group as an example um, so that they feel comfortable to provide the appropriate oversight? And even what does that oversight look like? 
So I think while the guidance has tried to narrow the definitions in some use cases, it, it could lead to some cases for other folks um, having to be included uh, as a result. Uh, and I'll give you a specific example really around um, our virtual site or meta site. You know, if you take a look at the guidance document and its references around who requires uh, to be on section six, which is around um, the content of the sub-investigator, it's really anyone that's significantly and directly impacting the data. But in the context of a virtual site, by the sheer nature of it being virtual, every element of that task is being completed in a virtual manner by someone at a virtual capacity. So then that, in, to, at least in our view, signals and dictates that that's a significant and direct you know impact on the data and then to have to put all those uh, folks on the 1572 and have a pi feel comfortable to have oversight of these folks i think are what some of the challenges that still lie if you further overlay that with the recent e3 draft guidance some of it has been very particular and clearly outlines the responsibility of the PI to actually qualify um, these individuals. It does also provide in that particular documentation um, the ability for the PI to reject uh, or um, accept this type of decentralized strategy, but if they accept it, the onus falls on them. So I think overall, the guidance really tried to simplify things. I think in doing so, they covered a lot of the aspects that maybe are current today. To your point, not everything is covered, but there's still some looming questions. And I think the overarching one for me is, you know, is it fair for us to continue to have the investigator to be the one responsible to to take the ownership under their belt for these decentralized strategies when in many cases um, they're a third party that is not affiliated directly with that investigator. Thanks, Shaheen. You know, your your comments also, you know, prompt a few reminders for me. One is important for folks to who are running studies globally to pick up this guidance and to pick up the EMA recommendations as well. Um, and the EMA recommendations obviously don't talk about 1572s, but there's a lot of conversation there about um, uh, about investigator oversight. And I think if you did a word cloud out of that document, you'd see a ton of references to oversight and making sure that when there's a connected device, when there are third party visiting nurses, when there's whatever that other stakeholder or data source or element is, we have to make sure that we could demonstrate that the investigator has access to the information needed to provide proper and thorough oversight. And that's kind of implied in a lot of what you were pointing to in terms of some of the challenges with the, uh, with the, with the FDA's guidance. But I, one thing that you know also stood out to me on the FDA's guidance is, to my knowledge, this is the first time we're seeing discussion about a role of an HCP, a healthcare provider, in a clinical trial. An HCP in this case, meaning the person who's not the investigator. Um, maybe that's a pharmacist, maybe that's a community physician, it's some other healthcare provider being able to play some role in the study. And 
I think, you know, to date, whenever we've looked at some other stakeholder like that, we've we've kind of assumed, well, they have to be a sub-investigator or play some defined role. And now we're, we're seeing a, a robust discussion in the draft guidance calling out tracking of these people on logs, but what types of activities that are routine care that those types of HCPs would be able to provide. Um, I floated that to uh, a, a friend at the FDA who, in their view, kind of confirmed that, to their knowledge, that's the first time you're seeing descriptions of an HCP in a clinical trial is in this draft guidance. Um, but to me, it was just a noteworthy call out. Becky, I don't know if you had other kind of call outs or observations just based on on the draft guidance itself. So thanks, Craig. I, I think um, in regard to the, the HCPs, I think that was one of the most important uh, components of the guidance as we think about what require what is required to be on the, the 1572 and what is not, because I think it helps us clarify that if if we have phlebotomists and providers and um, other healthcare services that are not um, directly involved in the protocol activities um, from a research perspective, that there is you know statement that they do not need to be required on the 1572. Really looking at those providers that are providing routine services as part of the research protocol. So I think that's been very helpful um, as we think about what needs to go on the 1572 and, and what doesn't. But you referenced the logs that are also referenced in the document, whether that be the delegation of authority or the task log. And I think that's where my questions begin in regard to what level of documentation is appropriate for that mobile phlebotomist. Is that someone um, that is assigned on the task log? Um, is it at a corporate level if we're utilizing a network that crosses the country or crosses the globe? And so I think it did help us move forward with outlining who does need to be on the 1572. But I think another important consideration is, is PI oversight, as Shaheen mentioned, really thinking about just because they're not listed on the 1572, what processes are in place to make sure that those uh, routine services are done in a, a fashion that can be documented and can be supported with the data collection needs of the protocol. Yeah, I'm going to chime in here because I think one thing that is it's a little line in the guidance, but there's a clear statement that as we add new members to the trial ecosystem, I think it says something like new communication and processes, communication plans and processes may be required. So to Becky's point, I think we now have clarity that other people who aren't typically considered part of the research team can contribute to the research process. You will have to, as a PI and or sponsor, clarify to them what is expected of them when certain situations arise. So they may not be GCP trained, but they may still need to be able to know what happens if a serious adverse event happens. I don't think it's terribly complicated. I think we make those plans already, but now we have some new players in the plans. 
Well, let's open up the room a bit. For those of you that are joining us here live on Clubhouse, we're at the halfway point in the hour, and that's usually the time when we just welcome some new faces that may have just joined us here, as well as open up the room for your questions, experiences, and ideas on today's topic. If you have just joined us, welcome. You are live here in the Decentralized Trials Club on Clubhouse, where we gather every Friday, 12 to 1, or Maybe you're on the Decentralized Podcast, uh, you're listening to a replay over in the car or on the plane or wherever else life may take you. Uh, keep in mind, we gather here every Friday live and rebroadcast the following week. So if you have topics you'd love to see us cover in the weeks ahead, make sure you're dropping a line, dropping that smoke signal to let us know. This week's topic, talking about 1572s and the draft FDA guidance on decentralized clinical trials, welcoming our guests uh, Shaheen Limbada from Veristat, as well as Becky Kochdell from the Mayo Clinic. Uh, uh, talking a bit about some of the work that that uh, that these two individuals are helping to drive with a new collab at DTRA and just other observations about what makes this space challenging today. If you would like to jump on stage and add your voice to the conversation here on Clubhouse, there should be a little hand raisey icon on the bottom right on your screen in the app. Give it a tap. We'll welcome you gladly up here on stage. If you are shy of the microphone, that's okay too. There is a room chat feature and we'll be sure to keep an eye on what's going on over there. One question I see in the chat that maybe I'll flow to either Jane, Shaheen, or Becky, the language on the new draft guidance seems pretty clear around the 1572, but what do folks feel is still missing or concerning? Shaheen, you started to hit on some of that. What are those themes, though, uh, otherwise, that folks feel are still missing or in need of clarification as it relates to the 1572 and some feedback based on what we're seeing in the guidance? Becky, were there other gaps on your mind? Thanks, Craig. Um, a great question. And I do think the guidance did clarify a number of things, but a couple of things that are still a little ambiguous to me are in the guidance it talks about the PI needs to be physically available for oversight at each site. So what does that mean and how do we address that in a decentralized fashion? As well as the other big question that has resonated is what is significant contribution to data collection and, and how do we make sure that that ties back into those that are listed on the 1572? Thanks, Becky. Jane, are there other gaps or concerns either on your mind or you've been picking up in conversations with a lot of peers in this topic? Yeah, I'll dig a little bit in on a couple that Becky raised and Shaheen, please chime in. So one of the ahas that came up for us is the form was developed in a time really before anything like eSource existed. And there are two main elements to the form, if you're not familiar with it. There's a lot of boxes, but basically it covers two things. Who's involved in the research? Where do we go to look at the data? And then who is signing to take on the um, oversight of clinical care of all the patients in the trial under their oversight? So one thing we've been wondering is in a world where eSource is 
becoming or maybe even is the norm in a bunch of trials, why does location matter? You're capturing that digitally. So one of the things we've wondered is, is there a future where that need to have a physical location where you go audit documents goes away? That may not change the oversight requirements by the PI to look at the data in eSource and make decisions about patient care in compliance with the protocol. But that physical location domain seems not to fit in an eSource world for us. And maybe Becky or Shaheen would explain that differently. You know, one yes and Jane, and then I'd love to hear Shaheen and Becky's thoughts here at the uh, American Association of Cancer Research AACR annual meeting last month. Um, some regulators put out the um, the suggestion that perhaps we need to track on a visit by visit or even data field by data field level, um, how was that data collected? Was it collected in a pharmacy, via video, in the home, on the phone? Um, now, doing that on a field by field basis sounds incredibly burdensome, but is there some additional level of granularity that is where it really counts and where it really matters for us to understand if there really are differences or if it really is kind of irrelevant uh, in terms of location and have that type of location flexibility confidence. Shaheen, Becky, any other thoughts on Jane's point about location and will we reach a tipping point where it just doesn't matter? I think it's an important point. And I, I think we all live in a world where physical location is, is geography. And what what happens if physical location is a link to a shared server somewhere? Um, so I think there's an opportunity for us to redefine physical location in a way that makes sense where it's the data is accessible or the information is accessible to be reviewed by the individuals who need to review it. I think Scott made a good point in the chat as well that, you know, a site, how, how can we help further define site versus location in as much as where the actual research activities or procedures are taking place versus where services are be, being provided? Thanks so much, Becky. You know, there's a uh, one comment in the in the chat from uh, Joachim, who is not mic ready because of some background noise, asking about what happens if the current definition of investigator site that is in the ICHE6 uh, draft, if the current definition of investigator site stands in that draft. Um, I am um, actually still looking for what that definition is. I see a lot of definitions about investigator, but I haven't found a, uh, oh, here. The trial site definition in that draft, the location or locations where trial-related activities are actually conducted. That's an interesting definition. You know, it's interesting also in that when we asked a similar question to folks from the FDA at the DTRA annual meeting last year, their sentiment was, we don't really define site. Most of our regulations discusses investigator, investigator role. Um, it's it's interesting to, to see, I saw one definition recently that came from a draft document at the National Academies here in the US that um, 
describe the investigator site specifically as the brick and mortar location. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question that Yoakum is raising. Um, does a definition of trial site, do we need a definition of a trial site? Should it be where trial related activities are actually conducted? Or what does that even mean today? Does that mean the car is a trial site? My office is a trial site? Well, my phone is a trial site. Or, or where you're so, using your phone at this particular moment? Yeah. I think let, let's get a little reductionist instead of, sometimes I think our terminology needs bind us up a little. So I think we need to assure that the regulators, if they need to review the data, can see the data and make sense of how it was collected and whether or not it was collected in a way that complies with GCP and the protocol. It, they don't, so this is where we get stuck, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean it all happens in one physical location, but there may need to be one person to whom they can ask questions. So I think that's maybe the intention, and I, I hope we can ask some of the policymakers about that. You know, I, I, I feel like there is a, a, a new definition of the site that we have to start to consider. The term site is, is embedded. I don't think a term should go away, but the, the site feels to me like it's the people, process, and technology that is surrounding and enabling the investigator to do their job. The regulations describe the responsibilities and work of the investigator. The, the site is simply the infrastructure that's enabling them, but does it have to be the location in today's world? Shaheen, Becky, do you have any, uh, any takes on this or is it feeling too theoretical? I mean, it's, I think overall, um, to your point, I think Craig and, and others that have made at different stages and conferences, I think the overall definition of what we'd call today's site, you know, it needs to shift and change. I feel it's still quite a bit theoretical in, in, a, in, a, in a sense. And, and I think if we don't get to a place where we can be more inclusive, we're going to, um, you know, continue to find challenges to move through different legislation and different rules and regulations that define site in a traditional manner. So, you know, I think starting to look at, um, you know, as perhaps to Jean, to Jane's point, you know, where where the regulators might be able to go to to identify the work that was done and ensure it's done in the correct way is is more important than actually, you know, defining that that maybe that is the definition as opposed to what we currently try to define it today. Fair takes, fair takes. I, I think this is such an, you know, potentially it feels theoretical, but actually it, it can feel constraining and limiting. Becky, some would say, uh, you know, you've got a, you're, you might be connecting with us from a research site right now. Is the term research site obsolete? I wonder if it's obsolete or if it just needs to be reimagined. Um, do, you know, as we think about 
location and sites and all of those things, we all, at least, and I'll speak for myself, I determined to like a place, where can I go? But I could go on the internet, I can go to a shared server space. So maybe adding to the definition of site that it doesn't has to be a physical location, it can be an electronic location, or it can be a space where I can interview someone or ask questions. Um, that might be via Zoom, that might be me via my mobile phone, but as long as I'm able to trace the information in a way that makes sense, maybe that's how we define site. Yeah, and we've asked some of our colleagues, so what happens if you conducted the trial virtually using virtual investigators and an audit needs to be done? Um, and there are different answers, but one that has come up is, okay, so then we invite the auditors to come to a physical office location and they log on and review all the data electronically. So it works, but it's still like, maybe we're not harnessing the power of the technology fully yet. So I'll get a little practical because I know we've talked a lot about theoretical concepts here, but because we have had this really great team who come from very different backgrounds across the ecosystem, all of whom are trying to sort out how do we clarify and allow people to feel comfortable operating in these new models? One of the tools that Becky and her team have been working on a lot is a set of resources that are typically included in a trial, like um, a phlebotomist, uh, a nurse that's administering IP, a pharmacist who's preparing IP. And we've taken that list and documented, well, what happens in the current state in a traditional trial? And then how do we think that that might be different in a DCT? Um, and added some rules that may appear in a DCT and not in a traditional trial. And it's been pretty interesting to work with the team to figure out how would you actually recommend that we codify this? Does it belong anywhere? Does it go on the task log? Does it go in the 1572? And while that seems painstaking, what we're hearing from people who are involved is if we did have a resource to draw on, it might be helpful across the ecosystem. So I'll stop and let both Shaheen and Becky add to that or veer away. Jane, great, great point. Um, I think it's so helpful because we often get involved in our own example of why why it should be on the 1572 or why it shouldn't not be. And so if we can come up with key categories of typical services for clinical trials and map them from a traditional trial to a DCT trial and where they need to be documented, I think it gives all of us guidance on our individual examples and how they might fit. Now, I think you and I have both talked about how sometimes we get stuck in the 20%. But if we can provide a resource that can help uh, study teams and researchers and other stakeholders navigate through this, it at least gives them a starting point to understand that they're doing the best they can to document the responsibility and the oversight appropriately.
I would agree. I think it's been an extremely useful exercise, <clears throat> and and I think it'll be a very useful tool for folks to help um, identify where to place these various services in either task logs, delegation of authority. And I think it would also bring a little bit of alignment through if we all kind of agree that these are the appropriate locations, then alignment starts to um, you know, uh, become part of the conversation. And I think that's critical because so many of us are trying to navigate the unknown as we're trying to come up with innovative ways to help patients participate in clinical trials that um, I think you sometimes feel alone, uh, that you're lost a little bit or unsure. And I think a document like this could give you some clarity and alignment in terms of how others may be doing it and thereby making your decision-making a little bit easier. And adding to those comments, I also think everyone who's been involved in the work knows they have other people they can call when they get stuck which I find incredibly helpful. It's like, oh gosh, new situation. What would you do? And uh, I really appreciate that people are being so thoughtful about this. So one other little element that came up as an aha is I love that there's a task log now. And in a decentralized trial, you may not know who all the players are until the patient is actually enrolled. So that means the task log is a living document, even more than the delegation of authority log, which is fine. It's just a new tool to help those regulators understand who was involved. But I don't know that we've all digested that yet. I certainly hadn't. Let's take a listen to our friend Scott Stout. So I see who has joined us here on the stage. Scott, feel free to introduce yourself for anyone that has not had the pleasure. Share your thought perspective question today. Um, thanks, Greg. Um, yeah, as, as you know, I have lots of opinions on this uh, as the CEO of MedVector. Um, what, you know, one of the big fears that I have is that we, we continue to call it ADCT. So rather than recognizing that potentially any study could use decentralized tools and that DCT is a spectrum from not any DCT elements to a fully decentralized study, but the concern is that we're, we're creating this new bucket and we don't know how to get into the rather than creating a walkway from one place to the next. Does that make sense? Well, I, I think when we, when we look at the term decentralized clinical trial in the FDA's guidance, a DCT refers to a clinical trial where some or all of the trial-related activities occur at locations other than traditional clinical trial sites. Does that feel like it's a it's a bucket, or does that just feel like it's a an open and expansive opportunity? Do you feel that that's constraining? No, that definition feels right to me. The, the The concern that I have is the way that we talk about it, right? So we talk about a DCT study rather than a study that has DCT elements, and so it's it's almost like this impossible bucket to get to, and we run into all of these these what ifs. And so like one of, you know, one of the big concerns I have is if I'm speaking with a CRO and I tell them about some decentralized elements that we could implement into their study, the response is, but this isn't a DCT study. 
That's my big concern. So Scott, I think at DTRA, we completely agree with you. We've always defined, you know, the methodologies that can be used in varying degrees. And I think that comes to one of our initiatives, which is education. So we do need to educate people. But I think the way you're describing it and, and the wording that Craig read is to me very clear that these are a set of methodologies that one can use to one extent or another. That's yeah, right. I mean, Scott, I, I would agree with you. <clears throat> um, the way we use the terminology, you know, certainly, you know, is, is, is a cause for, for the concern you raised. And I think it, it, that education is critical, as Amir mentioned, <clears throat> because I agree that, um, to your point, being a CRO, um, you know, we're on the same page you're on in terms of, hey, if there's a solution. So a, a decentralized PCT at Veristat does not mean, you know, a, a trial necessarily that's virtual. We, we'll actually define it as a patient enabling strategy or solution. So that could be a myriad of things, as you mentioned, on that spectrum. Um, you know, so I think that continued education for folks is important. So we don't pigeonhole ourselves into this has to be a DCT trial where it's got a virtual element to it or an at-home nurse element or something of that nature, but more around, you know, these are strategies and tools we can use to enable patients in participation. And yes, they happen to decentralize the trial to a certain extent. Great call out. I think we'll hopefully keep seeing more folks um, amplifying that, you know, decentralized trial is just an umbrella term. It means a lot of different archetypes. We're really talking about a portfolio of decentralized methods, tools, technologies, services. Um, they could be brought together in most any clinical trial today. Um, I think there are very few studies that wouldn't be able to leverage some decentralized methods within, but there'll be very few studies that are fully decentralized. Jane? Um, I was just going to mention to Scott that I totally agree with your thinking. So apologies if my terminology let you think something different. And aligned to that, yesterday we had a really interesting discussion about what we'll call non-traditional research sites. Let's say it's how those new nodes in the research network can be used in trials. And we all agree that in 15 years, we're not going to use that non-traditional research site term because that'll just be our norm. But while we're in the change management curve, the folks who are learning how to use the systems that are new have to find a way to kind of navigate from what they know to what is new. So the terms are probably, um, it feels like we're building walls, but I think we're actually trying to provide maps for people to know how to use the new tools. Maybe it's as silly as instead of DCT being decentralized clinical trials, we call them decentralized tools. Well, I'm, I'm not a fan of, of reinventing language. We have guidance, we have policy statements from, from federal uh, legislators, we have all sorts of use of the term decentralized trials. I, I think the term can work. We just, as Amir mentioned, we just need to make sure we're educating and reinforcing for folks that a decentralized trial is simply any study making use of decentralized methods 
and enabling uh, people the ability to participate outside of a traditional research site. Um, it's probably easier than trying to get everybody to embrace new um, new jargon, especially now that we have things like regulatory positions from from regulators around the world. That's that's at least my sentiment. I I totally agree. I wasn't insinuating that we should change the the the, the term legally. I was just referring to how we because I, I think I think we would agree uh, collectively. I mean, even as an industry that DCT is good, right? And it, and, it, and it opens up diversity elements and it opens up opportunities for, you know, underprivileged communities and it, and it accelerates um, recruitment. So there's a lot of positives about DCT, but everybody's afraid of it, right? So, and, and it's, it's not moving forward as quickly as potentially it should. So it's, it's just more of the, the framing of how we talk about it with our peers in, in getting people to not be so timid by the concepts of implementing DCT elements into existing studies rather than it being its own bucket. So that's the point that I was making. And I, I do want to call out our friend Jeff Zucker in the chat mentioning eventually we don't talk about decentralized. Eventually we don't talk about digital. Eventually we just call these clinical trials and this is how we do our business today. We're still normalizing a lot of these methods. We're, we're still normalizing making them accessible on a global basis. We're still normalizing how folks are able to consistently include these options. Ideally, the D does go away. Amir? So just, I mean, I'll point out a couple of obvious things. One is th this is not unique to DCT, whether it was EDC, whether it's digital health, where people all the digital health people keep saying it'll eventually be just called health. This is nothing new. People don't particularly like change and they don't like new stuff. So, you know, th this is not unique to DCT. We've been here before. And then, um, and we'll continue to be with anything new. Uh, the other thing is, I mean, it's not just our industry either. I mean, think about all the regulators, legislators, they're always playing catch up, whether it's about social media or any new technology. Unfortunately, we're always gonna have regulation and legislature that's behind, in some cases, woefully behind. Um, and unfortunately, the people with sort of actually in the trenches have to deal with that, which I think is some of the attempts we're trying to do to provide clarity. But unfortunately, it's not always that we can have clarity from a federal level necessarily all the time. So that's the only couple of things I want to point out. But Amir, are the regulators ahead of us here? As Scott was mentioning, a lot of folks are still reticent. Many are still struggling with adoption. And here we have EMA, FDA, Japanese, Chinese regulators. Everybody's putting out a position from regulators. Are they, are they actually swinging in front of us? Uh, they're certainly trying to, for sure. And I think that's nothing new. I mean, you can think about just the traditional thing where most pharma companies tend to blame regulators for delays. It turns out it's really not the regulators that are in conservative regulatory groups. Right? So that would be the analogy there. I think, yes, I think what we're struggling with is despite the guidances, there's clearly still, you know, not clarity on everything. And I think that's the challenge, right? That's not clarifying everything. But I agree with you. I, I tend to be on the side of things regulators do try and be, but I think they're a little bit, it's a little bit easier for the regulators and legislature for sure to be ahead of the curve. I do think we need to take away the intent though. And 
maybe not everything is clear in the regulations, but the fact that the regulators have put out position papers and guidance documents clearly tells us they want this to happen. And that has been the first hurdle in adoption, I think, for a number of the interested parties. So kudos for setting well, at least the vision. And I do like to remind folks that way back in 2018, it was the FDA at City, the Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative, that kicked off the project around mobile clinical trials, where they produced recommendations on decentralized clinical trials way back before the pandemic. Um, that wasn't driven by the pharma members of City. It was really driven by the regulators themselves. Um, so they, uh, I, I think, have been consistently a, a, probably an inch ahead of a lot of folks in industry. Not everybody. There's certainly some great change agents and pioneers here. We are at the top of our hour together. Time flies so quickly. I'm looking forward to regrouping with folks next week. In the meantime, my thanks to Becky, to Becky Shaheen for helping to lead this week's conversation, Scott and so many others in the chat for being willing to share their perspective. Be sure to stay connected with us here, whether on the Clubhouse uh, Decentralized Trials Club or through those podcast channels, through the Decentralized Podcast. We'll look forward to regrouping with everybody in the week ahead. Thanks, everybody.